another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zach Schmall. The Five Things I Read This Week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. You can also find this podcast on iTunes, in the Google Play Store, on Podbean, on my new favorite podcast website, Cloudcaster. You can find us a lot of places. And if you do find us in any one of those places, I would really appreciate it if you'd leave a review. Obviously, reviews help algorithms. They'll help people find what I do here, but they'll also help... uh, you know, they'll give me some feedback, and I'd appreciate that. I never really know what you're thinking unless you tell me. So today and this week, I've been reading a lot about education and thinking about education. We, we think it's important to learn, and it is, but even more so important is actually understanding the content of what we learn. So, we can learn a lot of meaningless junk. We can teach people about anything. But we can teach them wrongly, right? We can teach them useless things. And so, we're going to be thinking about this today. Um, We're going to think about what's right and what's wrong with education, how we can make it better, and how education itself can be useful, and how it may not always be useful. So the first article I have for you is from the Searcy Institute, written by Joshua Gibbs on June 19th. Can classical education help with fake news? So we all hear about fake news everywhere. You hear it all over any time you turn on the TV. Either someone's defending the media and saying they're not fake news, or someone's accusing them of being news. So what do we do? And this article by Gibbs, he he says, and here's a um, here's a quote for you. And this is in the context of him talking about listening to a panel on NPR of how to help people filter fake news. Another panelist countered with the suggestion that high school students are already learning analytical thinking skills, given that their chemistry and biology classes cover the scientific method. Alas, I'm not sure we know how to think about how we think. So Gibbs is making a, uh, a dichotomy here. Sometimes we take analytical thought that is basically scientific thought, maybe mathematical thought, and we assume, oh, I know how to analyze, let's say, numbers or scientific data. Therefore, that transfers automatically over into thinking about the humanities, into thinking about how I interpret the news, how I understand history, how I understand politics, how I understand rhetoric. All of these things... I 
think need to be analyzed, but is the analytic thinking necessarily apply across the board in the same way in all disciplines? Now, Gibbs goes on to say later in his article. <laughs> As a classicist, I do not believe that teaching students to judge one news story more reliable than another will do much good in itself. For the world is full of people who know real news when they see it, but nonetheless respond with banal virtue signaling or aimless hand-wringing. Knowing real news does a man littlehood when he responds to it with fake feeling. Now this is significant, right? And this is really kind of our world in a nutshell. A lot of people realize when they see the news and it flies in the face of evidence, oh, that's fake. I mean, why is it the case that so many people have grasped onto this idea of fake news? Maybe because they realize some things have indeed been reported wrong or have been reported irresponsibly. Um, the problem, of course, is the way we respond. Because we basically just throw emotions out there. And those emotions don't really do any good. As Gibbs says, it's fake feeling. And he, he suggests that in classical education, it's perhaps more useful for students to learn how to think and then evaluate. So. He says, a fair-minded man weighs his oh-so-clever question against the likelihood that others long before him have asked the same question and received a satisfactory answer. And the classicist assumes that the crucible of time is more demanding than the crucible of logic. And then a little bit further down, the classical prejudice, or prejudice, is a special kind of respect paid to things which have lasted, but also a certain skepticism that new things will last long, especially new things which claim they will last a very long time. And so, how does this fit into the idea of fake news? Well, when we see the things that appear to be wrong, right? we see things that just, they don't swear with reality. And Gibbs fully admits that most people are reasonably good at this filtering process. And that is why we have such a resonation, I think, with the idea of fake news, because we realize it's not just the talking point, but there is bias and there are people that are trying to spin us in a certain way through their virtue signaling hand wringing. They try to throw us on these emotional roller coasters and we realize sometimes 
not all the time, that, you know, okay, that, that's not true. So Gibbs provides people with a lot of credit, he, which I know some people would disagree with. Um, but his point is that, you know, when you see something that isn't true, and then it seems like so unbelievable, you've never heard this before, you've never seen it before, someone comes up with this and says, oh, hey, did you know that X is true? And you know that X has been rejected for a thousand years. There's the classical educated individual understands that there is a pretty strong tradition of challenging ideas in Western civilization. And because of that, if an idea is still around today, it doesn't mean we automatically accept it, but rather we give it a lot of credence and it takes a lot of evidence to overturn it. So here's an example. I mean, let's just say you are of the persuasion that democracy is horrible. And you say, let's say the failure of democracy in any one of a number of countries where they have elections that are basically show elections because of immense threats that only allow one candidate to win. This seems to be the case in many uh, African regimes where they're democracies, but we all know that's not true. They win the election basically by threatening people of what will happen if they don't. So we, we see that, and we could say, okay, well, democracy is a failure. The classicist understands that, okay, maybe there are problems, right? Democracy can be abused, but we have a certain deal of respect because it's lasted a long time and the idea has been around and it's been tested. A lot of hard questions have been thrown at it. So even if we don't know all the answers right now, we have a certain degree of faith, if you will, that the answers are out there if we go find them because there has been a great conversation that's taken place over hundreds or even thousands of years trying to help people, you know, filter out bad ideas. And if it survives this long, it might not be true. It very well might be false, but it has a lot more credence right off the bat. And that's the whole point here about fake news, right? Having a classical education helps you develop the skill set. It helps you think about, okay, I see the news and that seems particularly radical and it, it doesn't square with anything else I know. So maybe I should give the tradition heavier weight. Maybe the tradition would be wrong. And, you know, if you think about that in the context of fake news, Normally, it's one out there story. One story that doesn't square with anything. If we've developed that skill set in our students to err on the side of tradition, then perhaps we have an antidote or at least a better way 
to avoid fake news more so, or at least critically think about fake news and be able to say, okay, I've seen the way that, you know, this situation has been handled for hundreds of years, so why is it all of a sudden magically different? That helps level everything out. So this article was from the Searcy Institute, written by Joshua Gibbs on June 19th, Can Classified Education Help with Fake News? Moving on then to an article written by one of my colleagues in the PhD program at Faulkner University. This article was written by Mr. Scott Postma on June 19th also on his personal website, scottpostma.net, and it's entitled, A Brief History of Christian Humanism. So when we think about education, right, one thing is to teach us how to think, and perhaps to err on the side of tradition. Now, I want to talk about this tradition, because Christian humanism, as Postma talks about it, is the belief that human freedom, individual conscience, and unencumbered rational inquiry are compatible with the practice of Christianity, or even intrinsic in its doctrine that represents a philosophical union of Christian faith and the classical humanist principles. Now, Christian humanism, we can see it all the way back. Why in the book of James are there quotes from Plato? When Paul, or when Jesus, you know, confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, why does he use a Greek idiom from Aeschylus' play Agamemnon? These are all examples Postman provides. Paul was educated in Tarsus, and yet he was also a Pharisee. So he had an understanding of both Judeo-Christian history Judeo-Christian theology, and he understood his pagan literature. When we see him on Mars Hill in the Book of Acts, right? Paul's quoting from the Greeks' own authors. Now, this is powerful evidence, right? There's this union between, you know, understanding that Christianity is true, and it is, but also being able to draw in from this kind of humanistic perspective, this uh, this concept that you know, we can have freedom and conscience and you know rational inquiry. These ideas that you know you don't have to avoid everything about the pagans, but rather seek wisdom where it is to be found. And if wisdom is true, then it will be consistent with God as well. I think that's a challenge in education, right? I We were talking about fake news before, and it's so easy to broad brush reject things, right? Because that's what we do. And we say, okay, I think that yeah, everything that anyone ever said on CNN must be false. And why why do I think that? Well, I think that because I saw one story 
on CNN, it was false, right? And I think we apply this to our education, too. I mean, the pagans got a lot of stuff wrong, obviously. There's a reason I'm not a pagan. Presumably, you're not a pagan, if you're listening to me, because I don't know that I'm very big in pagan circles. But that doesn't mean that there weren't some people, like Plato, for crying out loud, who had a lot of things right and a lot I can learn from. I don't have to throw out everything because I disagree with parts of it. In fact, the parts of it that are true are going to be consistent with a Christian worldview. Why? Because God is truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if Jesus Christ is the truth, then all truth is in him. And through general revelation, there are pagans who stumbled across truth. They didn't invent it, and they deviated astoundingly. So I'm not trying to pull out some universalism here. Jesus Christ is also the way, but he contains all truth. Therefore, it's not as if the idea that we should love our neighbor only came out of a Christian worldview. Perhaps it's most consistent with the Christian worldview. Perhaps it only makes sense in the context of a Christian God. I don't deny any of that. But is it any surprise that there were these kind of communal relationships that people did love their neighbors in all kinds of civilizations? And why did they do that? Well, because they found truth. So, then Postma, he goes on to kind of outline the whole development of the, uh, of the Christian humanist movement. And here, here's a good quote. He's talking about Clement, Gregory of Nyssa, Jerome, Sandy Heston. These men of letters were educated in the classical tradition and frequently, quote, plundered the Egyptians, gleaning the splintered light of the pagan ideas for a fuller understanding of the scriptures and the means by which to communicate more difficult concepts. So when we think about this idea of education, I think our gut reaction is to run away and to say, oh, you know, they must not have anything right because they have certain things wrong. The pagans reject Jesus Christ. Therefore, they must be wrong about everything. You know, for me, a pretty good example of this is one of my favorite political commentators, Ben Shapiro. He's Jewish. He's very is a very conservative Jew theologically. He's Orthodox. And I've heard him talk on air quite a bit about why he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. This makes me incredibly sad. That being said, I don't throw out his entire podcast you know, because he's wrong about that one area. I think he's right about some other areas. And I think I can learn true things from him. I think I can learn you know, an informed conservative perspective largely by listening to him, 
even though I think and he's tragically wrong about his understanding of Jesus Christ. And I think that kind of practice comes out of a Christian humanist tradition where we don't just slam the door on people. Rather, we take their ideas, we evaluate them. Some of them, in fact, fit perfectly into our Christian worldview, and we reject the parts that don't. I haven't magically become an Orthodox Jew. I haven't magically, you know, decided that I'm going to practice Judaism. I, I can't do that. I can't follow him there, but I can still learn, and I can still glean truth from, you know, albeit a source where I'm not 100% in agreement. So this article, you should read it. It's by Scott. Scott's a great guy. It's on scottpostma.net. He wrote this article on June 19th, A Brief History of Christian Humanism. Moving on then to the imaginative conservative, we're sticking with humanities here. Ideology and the Humanities it was written by Glenn Arbery on June 8th. So it's a little bit older, but I just saw it this week. So we have this um, this concept, and Arbery suggests ideologies are mind traps. They are constructed in such a way that they prejudge the motive of opposition to their systems. The great aim of liberal education is to liberate students from mere unexamined opinion into genuine thought. Ideologies, by contrast, claim to liberate their adherents from oppressive systems, whereas they actually imprison their victims in a narrow way of interpreting the world. Students are liberated, yes, but from their common sense. They are convinced to see everything around them in terms of oppression of gender identity or racial politics, for example. So I think that's the thesis of this whole article, that oftentimes, and this goes back to my past two points, we tend to prejudge things. We, and what we need to do is actually think through them responsibly. So how do we avoid fake news? Well, perhaps we give a little bit of heavier weight to tradition, you know, that helps us realize, hey, if one of these things is not like the others, maybe the one isn't true, and the whole body of evidence we have from the past is true. Um, and then beyond that, the, uh, the idea that in this Christian humanistic tradition, we search for truth wherever. We reject which is bad, we embrace that which is good. If you get wrapped up in your ideology, you'd lose that free inquiry. And you automatically assume that everything has to fit into your system. And the problem is when you do that, you start forcing things in, in places they really don't belong. That's a problem. So, if I have an ideology 
that says, well, Jesus Christ was a radical leftist socialist. I have to fit every little piece of evidence about Jesus Christ into that ideology. Spoiler alert, that doesn't work. If I claim that Jesus was a diehard right-wing free market capitalist, again, I don't know that that works either. Just cramming everything about Jesus Christ into an ideology that we have is a really problematic thing. And so Arbery's point is that the liberal arts are thought to help broaden our opinion from these ideologies. We don't just follow party lines. We search for truth, we do our best to find truth, and then we have an examined opinion in contrast to what he refers to as the mere unexamined opinion. We get out of the system and we look for truth wherever it may be found. And you know, like I just suggested, as Christians, we believe that God is indeed truth. Because God is truth, we shouldn't be afraid to go on this mission. I think that's where a lot of Christian education sometimes stumbles, because they say, oh no, if we let kids read all this stuff, or do all this stuff, <gasps> they might, you know, run away from the faith. They might not know how to deal with it. And then we'll have, you know, a whole bunch of mini-atheists running around. Well, I don't think that's the case. Jesus Christ, again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we find something that is indeed true, it is part of the big T truth, as Nancy Pierce would call it, and, and Chet Holson too. Um, it is part of the body of things that are true about our world. And when there are things that are true about our world, well, that is what we want, right? We are in the pursuit of truth. And you know, I've yet to find a truth that doesn't fit into a Christian worldview that isn't consistent with an understanding of the Christian worldview. So again, as you're reading this article by Arbery, just think about this idea that we want to fight against ideologies and encourage sheep. We don't just want people to follow blindly. We don't just want people to not examine their lives. That may seem to be a safer, uh, well, safer overall. It's not just a safer place, but it's safer everything. Because then we don't need to worry about our children running away. We don't need to worry about them finding ideas they don't necessarily know how to handle. But the, the fact of the matter is, they're probably going to learn these things anyway. They're going to hear these perspectives. And so we need to cultivate that spirit where children are encouraged 
to run headfirst into ideas and take them on and learn how to think about them. A proper reverence for tradition? Absolutely. Like we saw in Gibbs article. An understanding that God is truth? Absolutely. But then let's run in and find out what's true. Maybe, you know, maybe we actually had something slightly incorrect. I mean, maybe I always really thought that I knew what this one Bible verse meant, and then I learned from someone else, oh, there's a better way to understand that. See, the truly liberally educated individual will say, yes, this is good news. I found truth. I'm reaching for truth. If without that, someone trapped in an ideology will then simply either dismiss the evidence and will reject anything that doesn't fit into that ideology. And that's a problem because now you're rejecting truth in favor of your ideology, which if this new fact really is true, now your ideology is not conforming to truth. In fact, is actively rejecting. So this really is a good article if you want to think about education and how we really need to be fearless about ideas. Charge head first. Take them on. This is entitled Ideology in the Humanities, written by Glenn Arbery on the Imaginative Conservative on June 8th of 2018. I have another article from the Imaginative Conservative written by Joseph Pierce. He wrote it also on June 8th. It is entitled, Who's on the Right Side of History? I, I chose this article because a few weeks ago I wrote a very similar piece on my on my website, enteringthepublicsquare.com similar in topic, not our arguments go in a few uh, different directions, but on this topic it obviously stood out to me because it's been on my mind lately. We hear a lot about being on the right side of history. President Obama really liked to say how certain things were on the right side of history and certain people. Uh, that was a big deal for him. And so then Pierce is talking about this idea that we need to make sure we define what we mean. And he suggests that for the quote enlightened and quote progressive person, history is an inexorable descent from a primitive past to an enlightened future. The past is, therefore, always inferior to the present, as the present will be inferior to the future. And he goes on to kind of trace this idea through Hegel, Comte, and Marx, and then says, those progressives who dismiss their political opponents for being on the wrong side of history have accepted and embraced historical determinism of Hegel, Comte and Marx, seeing history as a liberating mechanism 
moving forward and crushing those reactionaries who get in its way. So, let's just stop right there really quickly. So, I, I already had that earlier article from Gibbs where I talked about how, you know, it, tradition ought to be valued and not 100% accepted, but it has extra weight because it survived so long. The longer it's been in the fire, the tougher it probably is. And so, this stands in direct contrast to these people who are kind of progressive, shall we say. They're moving um, towards this better future, and inevitably, the past is going to be worse than the, uh, than the future. The future is going to end up being just a wonderful place. We all want the future because we're going to continue moving towards that better thing. Um, the problem, of course, and Pierce points this out, it can be seen, therefore, that being on the right side of history depends on what we mean by history itself. If history is a mere mechanism of historical determinism, crushing those with unprogressive and unenlightened ideas, we can only be right if we genuflect before the might of the machine. If, on the other hand, it is the witness of human beings interacting with each other through time, teaching us through the consequences of their actions to avoid evil and its destructiveness, and inspiring us to live self-sacrificial lives which make the world better for our neighbors and even our enemies, we will only be on the right side of history if we follow the example of the saints and heroes. This is significant, right? What is history? Is history... Chesterton spoke about the democracy of the dead. And what he meant by that was this idea that in it's fashionable to disregard tradition. And the democracy of the dead is this idea that, you know, there were some pretty smart people in the past, and they thought through very similar issues to what you and I might talk about today. And they are worth listening to because, you know, they thought hard also. We want to take into account this tradition, similar to what Gibbs was talking about, the progressive has to believe that the past was bad and the future is going to be better. Otherwise, what are you progressing towards? Consequently, we have two incompatible visions here. And, at least for me, I think this is a big part of education and why we need to teach people about the past. Because I think they're going to realize that not everything about the past was unprogressive or unenlightened. I think they're undefined that there are some things that were true 500 years ago, true 1,000 years ago, true 2,000 years ago. And so there are certain, to use kind of a popular phrase, there are certain first principles that have always been true and are always going to be true 
and we cannot progress beyond those unless we want to avoid truth. And again, if we're pursuing truth, then, I mean, we're, we're in a bind. We can't reject that which we're trying to pursue, or else we're not pursuing it anymore. It's amazing. You know, who's on the right side of history? Well, this is how Pierce puts it right at the end. Those on the right side of history are those who live good and virtuous lives in the service of objective truth, thereby making the world a better and more beautiful place. And that should be the purpose of our education. Right there. There is the home run. It sums up everything I've been talking about so far, right here in this fourth article. Why do we value tradition? We don't idolize tradition, but we realize that perhaps there's something we can learn from it, and we don't dismiss it lightly. Why is humanism, and specifically Christian humanism, important? God is the big T truth. He is the all-inhabitant truth. We are on a mission to find objective truth, like Pierce talks about here, wherever it may be found. And why is it good to find objective truth? Well, of course it's good. Because when we act in accordance with objective truth, and we move in a direction that's consistent with it, human flourishing will result. Like Pierce says, we'll make the world a better and more beautiful place. We don't just reject the past. We find truth wherever it can be found. Even in the pagans, we reject the paganism. We reject what's wrong, but that doesn't mean we have to reject everything. And certainly we don't want to reject truth that can be found in other places where we might not want to broad brush approve of all of their teachings. And then, you know, we don't want to fall into these ideologies, right? We don't want to get so entrenched in a worldview that we start avoiding truth just to cram things in to our worldview. That is not helpful, but that's what these progressives have to do. Everything about the past must be rejected. Why? Because the future is going to be better. Therefore, the past must be evil. So this is a great article written by Joseph Pierce on the Imaginative Conservative on June 8th of this year, and it is entitled, Who is on the Right Side of History? And finally, I have something, well, it's unrelated, but I thought it was interesting. It was from Intellectual Takeout, How Did America Become a Nation of Slobs? It was written by Jeff Minnick on June 20th. So... I mean, it's not surprising, and he kind of makes fun of the uh, culture where people feel no need to actually attempt to dress up and to look nice. Now, that being said, I'm a guy who loves my sleeveless t-shirts, so I'm probably just as guilty of this as anyone that Minnick says. But, I think there's, um, there's something inherent in the fact that we oftentimes don't care about how we look. And what's inherent in that 
is it perhaps, and this is a point Minute brings up, are we rebelling against the idea of beauty and culture? It doesn't really answer that question, but it's significant to me, and that stands out to me. Is it possible that beauty is yet another objective truth that we're uncomfortable with? And we're, we're not thrilled that it's here. We don't want to have this standard of beauty. Therefore, we go in the opposite direction running. We are taking off 180 back where we came from. Why? Well, because we don't like the idea of any objective truth. We don't want there to be kind of this idea that, hey, it's not a bad thing to look nice. Now, some people are going to say, oh, you're just, you know, complaining and this really doesn't mean much. Clothes are just a contemporary standard. You know, they're nothing, uh, they're nothing important. It's just a sign of the times. And that may be true. I mean, obviously around the world, there's a lot of cultural difference, especially in terms of dress. You look at historically how people have dressed from all corners of the world. Obviously, there are massive differences. A lot of it came from the environment and what was comfortable. It's a lot different what you wear in Siberia and the Sahara. The clothing choices are bound to be different. But this idea that even by our own society's standards, we don't want to look nice anymore. People will say, well, I don't need the oppression of the man telling me to look nice. Maybe you don't. At the same time, if, if there are these expectations and this idea of what is beautiful, that seems to be pretty objective. I would argue that beauty is actually a trait and it's not entirely subjective. But that's another argument for another day. My point though is that we take active steps sometimes to avoid beauty. Now I get it. You're out in your garden, you're working out there, you're out there for function, not for beauty. This is true. I mean, it's a hot day. I'm not going to put on a suit. <laughs> I will have shorts on. And a t-shirt. Why? Because it's hot. Not a time for a wool suit. That being said, I think that we can go too far. And even beyond function, we simply say, well, I don't want to do what everyone else does. I don't want to be kind of this uh, conventional person. I, I don't want to follow the conventions of looking like everyone else. Therefore, I might actively rebel. And, you know, fine. People choose what they want to wear. I'm just saying there is a time to look nice. And I think this article kind of calls that out for us. That, you know, maybe we need a little more self-respect with how we dress.
will take ourselves more seriously. Other people will take us more seriously. And, I mean, honestly, I I like when people look nice. When I see someone dressed up really nice, it makes me happy. Because they look great. They enhance. Clothes have that ability, right? To enhance our natural beauty. You can look really good in a really nice set of clothing. And it just, it brings together the whole package. I, I would love to see more of that. I'd love to see people looking great all the time. It really does. It makes me happy. Beauty is pleasing. And I think everyone, obviously, has potential to do it. We all have a way to look good. But half the time, we just don't care. So this article was written by Jeff Minnick on June 20th. How did America become a nation of slobs? Well, that's all I got for y'all. I hope you enjoyed it. Four of the articles were pretty tightly related. One of them was a little bit off, but I found it really interesting. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. And, you know, we'll be back here again. Same time, same place, next week. Have an awesome time, everybody. Oh, <laughs>